Hi, I'm Evan Duncan, the senior pastor of the Baptist Church of Westchester in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm so glad you found our podcast channel. On it, we share our weekly messages, and from time to time, you'll see some other things as well. If you want to learn more about our church or see how you can contact us, visit bcwc.org. I have my voice to the voices welcoming you this morning. I'm Zach Wooten, our associate pastor. Um, thanks to you all as well for your prayers for me and my family uh, this week. There's uh, been a lot going on. My parents have been married for 52 years, and they have his and hers heart problems. And I, he said, you don't have to do everything together, but they're um, both doing really well. And I just want to express how grateful I feel that we can pray for one another, um, that we have the prayer chain ministry. I can email Alberta, and then off it goes. Um, we pray together all week long, um, not just on Sundays. And so that's such a blessing, and I feel very thankful for that. Um, we're also thankful for our, our, our interns. Casey Klemick was here this morning um, sharing um, just how grateful she's been for that experience, uh, for her worship uh, leader role, as well as the children's message today. Both um, Casey and Krestoff have been so wonderful to have with us this summer. Um, and it's so central to who we are as a congregation to be equipping young leaders and sending them out uh, using the gifts that God has given them uh, wherever God might call them. And so as we near the end of our summer with them, uh, we'll continue to, to celebrate and give thanks for that as well. Uh, speaking of celebration, last week we heard from Reverend Dr. Marie Anubarariri, the director of the Intercultural Ministries for the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. So if you missed her sermon or Pastor Evan's sermons in this series, you can always go to bcwc.org and listen via podcast or our YouTube page. Uh, this is wonderful for our far-flung sheep, wherever they might be. We have some uh, folks with us uh, from Virginia today, and we're glad to see you. Um, and so we can continue to worship together wherever we might, might be. So Pastor Evan passed the baton to Pastor Marie, who then passed it to me for this portion of our sermon series, which, by the way, is about Queen Esther, as Casey alluded to. As a reminder, this took place 100 years after Jewish exile. Some Jews had returned to Israel, but some had not. This story is about the Jews who had been exiled but are continuing to live in Susa, which was the capital of Persia. As some additional uh, reminders, it was written by an anonymous author, and God, at least for the Protestant Bible, is mysteriously absent. So that doesn't mean that the activity of God is altogether missing. Instead, it's up to us, the readers, the interpreters, the faithful, to seek God in this story. And what a beautiful exercise that is, because in our own lives, this often happens. God isn't named, it's unclear where God might be, but if we look carefully, we can see God at work, even in unlikely places. We also have the good fortune of having the rest of Holy Scripture to help us understand Esther, and so we bring that with us to the series as well. Uh, the series, or the story of Esther, is told during the Jewish festival of Purim, which we'll learn more about next week when we have uh, feature a virtual conversation during our worship service between our senior pastor Evan and uh, Rabbi Elise Seidner-Joseph, who's a longtime friend of BCWC. So with all that said, our second to last week studying the book of Esther, a book that professor, Lutheran professor Diane Jacobson calls a story of resilience and courage told with wisdom and wit. 
That wit part is especially important as we turn to our chapters for today because we can see how dramatic this story is. And so many interpreters, Jewish and Christian alike, will view this scroll as satirical, meaning the author is employing some incredible literary devices of humor and irony and exaggeration to critique the vices of the very real threats that the Jewish people were experiencing, the very real harms that they had been enduring. And so this interpretive lens helps me when reading these chapters because it ends in a pretty violent way, but that violence is very much celebrated. And so the vengeful violence challenges some of my initial core convictions about what I believe our faith to be about. And so the poetic justice that comes through satire is a way that I can understand some of the violence that is uh, celebrated in the passage. And in fact, that's that satire, that uh, comedic making fun of someone who's harming you's foibles is pretty common in other places, in current literature, children's literature, even, um, and film. I'll give you a few examples of what I mean. Um, if you haven't uh, been checking out children's literature lately, I'll just give you a quick update on how that's going. Uh, there's a book called Pig the Pug, and in this modern classic, I also had a pug named Pig, so I'm like attached to this book. I'm like suing them right now for copyright, but um, that's a different story. Pig the Pug was the greediest dog you've ever known. And he is bad-tempered, rude, and never ever shares. And he has this friend, sibling, other dog who's nearby, who's a dachshund named Trevor. And Trevor really wants Pig to play with him. Um, so he says, you know, will you play with me, will you play with me? And Pig just takes all of his toys and he puts them in a big pile. And he says, these are mine, 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 mine. So he's standing there on top of the pile of these toys, literally a pile of his own greed. And you see in the illustration a window. And what happens next, you might guess, Pig falls out of the window. And the next page features Pig the Pug in a full body cast. And Trevor the Dachshund playing with his toys right in front of him. A feast in the presence of thine enemies. Or as children might say, that's what you get, you greedy little pug, this modern day Aesop's fable. So if it happens in children's literature, it happens in um, teen film. You could think about the modern day parable Mean Girls, written by Tina Fey, who in this movie, I'll just do one little part here, it's a spoiler, but it's been a few, few years. Um, Regina George is this relentless bully who makes everybody's life miserable. And then, shock of all shocks, she gets hit by a bus. Now. If you're watching this, you're appalled and just it comes out of nowhere, literally and in storytelling. And more than a few people might say, well, you know, she had it coming. And she ends up like Pig the Pug, full body cast as well. <laughs> One last example, um, Hansel and Gretel, you might be familiar with this fairy tale uh, where two children are lured to a house that looks like candy, presumably so this old lady will eat them. And then she, the kids push, hands, uh, push the person who's going to eat them into the oven. And then that's, that's her end. A little darker. Um, <laughs> kind of um, ironic. But either way, in all of these things, here's what's happening. The tables keep turning. The tables keep turning again and again. It seems like the person doing wrong is going to win, and then all of a sudden it flips in a pretty ironic way. What this might say to us about being a human 
is that we like it when a bad guy gets a taste of their own medicine because maybe that means that there's some justice in this world. There's some sense of order that could bring about and help us understand the sufferings that we're enduring. And so in the instance of Esther, we see the Jewish people coming to grips with what their reality of suffering has been and hoping that things could be different. And by the end, things are very, very different. The tables do indeed turn. There's this great reversal. So the implicit moral message here for all of these is that if we do the right thing, even if we're being attacked from all sides, we can be patient and courageous because who knows? Maybe God could use even this to bring about mercy and compassion and justice in our world. Redemption. Like the aforementioned examples, the story of Esther is dramatic and theatrical even, and it sounds a little bit like a made-for-TV drama. It's entertaining, but there's also deep wisdom and humanity here. You'll see what I mean. If you've not been with us, I'm just going to catch us up in my best TV recap voice. Here's what you missed on Esther. So this is all getting somewhere, I promise. But you need to understand this part. But just bear with me. Way back in chapter 1, the king of Persia and Media and his wife, the queen, Vashti, are introduced. The king demanded that the queen appear at this extravagant party, this banquet that he's having, so he could show off to everyone just how beautiful she is. She refuses. This is shocking and extremely dangerous for her. And so in this act of defiance, she's actually banished and her title is stripped from her. And the advisors of the king start to get worried. What if everybody else starts doing things like that, particularly the women or the wives? And so they persuade the king to make this decree that the wives need to start listening to their husbands or else. So this objectification and oppression was cemented by royal decree. The king then forces all the unmarried women to come together so that he could pick the next queen. He ends up picking an adopted daughter of a Jewish exile um, whose name was Mordecai, the exile. And her name, say it with me, was Esther. You got it. One day, Mordecai, that relative of Esther, was sitting at the gate, eavesdropping, a wonderful hobby, and he hears um, two of the king's eunuchs plotting, plotting to uh, kill the king. So he tells Esther, Esther tells the king, and those uh, two eunuchs are killed. So we're supposed to say, way to go, Mordecai, like you saved the king. Meanwhile, Haman, the head of staff and the head of staff for the king and the de facto villain of our story was upset because Mordecai refused to bow down to him. And he knew that Mordecai was Jewish, and so he convinces the king to issue a new decree that all of the Jewish people uh, should be destroyed and their goods should be stolen. And then the king and Haman, bad guy, are sitting there having a drink, looking over the city as it goes into just fear and confusion. And this image stands out to me as the powerful are sitting and enjoying a social drink as everyone else around them is afraid and suffering and death is knocking at their door. So Mordecai lets Esther know once again, you need to do something here. You need to stop this from happening. But she told Mordecai, that the king hadn't even summoned her into his presence in the past 30 days. And though she has new influence and new power as queen, she can't just summon herself in front of the king. 
The penalty of that, even for queens, could be death. Mordecai, though, says, what if the power or influence that you've been granted here is for this exact reason? Though the king does not know you are Jewish, if you reveal this to him, if you fight for our people, maybe redemption might come. What if your life meant something so much more than you'd expected? What if all the pain that you've endured and the influence you've been granted was for this exact purpose? What if you were here for such a time as this? Despite all that you've experienced, all the ways you've been disempowered, what if through you, God might act and redemption might come? Esther called the, uh, I guess, the ancient Jewish version of Alberta and like activated the prayer chain because she starts praying and she gets everybody else to start praying and they're all praying together that like the redemption might come through this. And so she's covered in prayer, her own and the prayers of the people um, who she shares a faith with. And Esther approaches the king, despite the great risk that's involved. And by the grace of God, the king welcomes her into his presence. And Queen Esther invites, using this opportunity, invites the king and Haman to her part of the palace for two back-to-back -back banquets, one on each night. Now, two invitations from the queen, the greedy, mean girl, candy house-living chief of staff Haman, was feeling pretty powerful at this point. And so he heeds the, inner, the advice from his inner circle and orders an enormous gallows be built for the purpose of hanging his number one enemy, Mordecai. Little did he know what was about to happen. The king then remembers, wait a minute, Mordecai was that guy who saved me from assassination. So he calls his trusted advisor, Haman, come on in, I need to talk to you. He says, Haman, suppose there was you know, someone who was amazing and wonderful and terrific and just like saved me again and again and was the best ever. And Haman's like, well, I don't know. Who could that be? And uh, the king says, well, what should I do to celebrate them? And Haman says, I don't know. Like, if it were me, I would want a giant parade. And the king says, that's awesome. You are my best advisor. Now go and give a giant parade for Mordecai. And so Haman then has to lead Mordecai on the parade of his dreams, walking past the gallows that Mordecai was supposed to be hanged on. And the tables again turn here. It was Haman who, got, um, who had to lead Mordecai around in that parade. Okay, that's the outcome of the first banquet and everything we talked about up until this point. All right, now we get to today. The next part of the story in chapters 7 and 8 reveal a pretty intense drama. It starts with a dinner party and it ends with capital punishment. So we're like going on an emotional journey together. <laughs> so chapter seven begins and we'll follow along on the screen for the scripture. So the king and Haman went to dinner with Queen Esther. At the second dinner, while they were drinking wine, the king asked, Queen Esther, what would you like? Half of my kingdom, just ask, and it's yours. This is the big moment, right? Would Esther risk it all, risk her life, and reveal that she, in fact, was Jewish and to protect the Jewish people? If this were TV, we'd go to commercial, but this is streaming, and this book is very old, so we can just click next episode. <laughs> Queen Esther then answers in verse 3, If I have found favor in your eyes, O king, 
And if it pleased the king, give me my life and give my people their lives. We've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, sold to be massacred and eliminated. And the king exploded. Who? Who did that? Where is he? This is monstrous. Keep in mind, there's only one other guest at this dinner party. And if I were like directing the scene, I would pan over to him, and he would be eyes darting back and forth, beads of sweat starting to drip down his temples. And then we go back to Esther, who points at Haman and says in verse 6, an enemy, an adversary, this evil Haman. Now, it's an awkward dinner party at this point because the tables had indeed turned. Haman was terror-stricken before the king and queen. And so the king is enraged, and he stomps away into the garden, and he leaves his wine behind. And that's a big deal. They put that detail in there because we know he loves wine. Haman began then to grovel at the queen's feet, to Queen Esther, to beg for his life. But then the king comes back in, thinks that Haman is either trying to assault or put some form of sexual advance um, upon the queen, and is mad because this is happening with him right around the corner. At this point, Haman knew that he was done. Haman, who had been on the elevator of ascent to power, going up and up and up, feeling really good about himself, with every button on that elevator he pressed, doing damage and destruction and bringing death, was about to be brought low. Queen Esther had taken the stairs and delivered the message that the elevator was broken. And then others start to chime in. Harbona, in verse 9, who's one of the eunuchs attending to the king, spoke up, look over there. There's the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai, who saved the king's life. It's right next to Haman's house, 75 feet high. What are the odds? The king, who never once has an original idea, says, hang him on it. So Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. It's like a triumphant moment. And so for me, I read this, and I'm pretty close to a pacifist, and I still str I struggle in this moment. I remember being a teen, an annoying teen, um, hearing this story and asking the kind volunteer adult helper, why couldn't Haman have been redeemed? Like, wouldn't Jesus have wanted Haman to be redeemed? Isn't that sort of what this is all about? Like, shouldn't Haman get the redemption arc of, and then everything was good because we forgave each other? And so I kept asking this question, uh, mostly because the adult evaded that question, because it's a very difficult question. But as an adult, as I look at this story now, I can sit back and think about how much our own positionality impacts the way we're understanding scripture. So I'm reading this as a, a Christian very later in a very safe place to be a Christian, surrounded by a community where most people were Christian. But as an adult, I can look at my own intersecting privileged identities, never once having been the target of oppression or enslavement or genocide or state-sanctioned violence. So if I forget all that, I could miss the point of this passage. So I need to read closer and think about who the original audience is and who the other audiences are today. So for those whose identities do and whose experiences do include systemic oppression and genocide and state-sanctioned violence, like perhaps the Jewish community who would be reading this and the Jewish communities who might be celebrating Purim today. Anything it takes to stop the murder of your people is a way that God's justice might win, is a way that God's mercy might be made known to us, which is different than the redemption arc uh, that I had suggested 
The next part of the passage in chapter 8 helps us to further understand that, to further understand why justice was brought about in this way and what that would mean. Remember, this story is about people who have been exiled for decades and are about to get wiped out as a whole by the powers that be. Instead, though, and we pick up in chapter 8, verse 1, the same day that King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, arch enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king because Esther had explained their relationship. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Esther appointed Mordecai over Haman's estate. And so there's some powerful symbolism here that's happening as we continue to see God reversing fortunes. Powerful abusers losing their footing, the turning of tables. So then Esther again spoke to the king. She falls at his feet. She begs him to revoke the plan that Haman had enacted on behalf of the king to kill her people. And the king instructed Queen Esther and Mordecai, well, we can't undo that one, but we can create a new decree which authorizes the Jews in every city to be empowered to both arm and defend themselves and attack those who are attacking them in the same way. The Jews who had been systemically and systematically disempowered were now being radically empowered. Through Esther, God was at work, and evil was not about to have the last word. Then, in chapter 8, verse 15, Mordecai walks out of the king's presence wearing a royal robe of violet and white, colors that signify royalty and power, a huge gold crown, and a purple cape of fine linen. Seeing Mordecai, who had been individually sentenced to death just before the Jewish people as a whole were sentenced to death in that community, now wearing these symbols of power, and protection amidst persecution and punishment brought about a beautiful reaction from the Jewish people. The city of Susa, we're told, exploded with joy. For Jews, it was good times and laughter. They celebrated. They were honored. It was that way all over the country, in every province, every city. When the king's bulletin was posted, the Jews took to the streets in celebration and cheering and fasting there would have been death, but now there is feasting. So what do we do with this story? Well, to those who feel like they can't catch a break, but maybe even bigger than that, to those who know through their lived experience that so often the world can seem cruel and merciless and to some perhaps godless, though that pain is real, it is not the only thing that's real. What's also real, and what Esther reminds us, is that when you're at the lowest of your lows, perhaps God is about to take the out-of-order sign off of a broken elevator and raise those who had been knocked down. The story of Evan, and Pastor, reminded me, Pastor Evan reminded me as we were discussing this passage. I needed a lot of discussion for this passage. It reveals something bigger about persistence in broken systems, he said. Being wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, and how important it is to have a willingness to expose the hypocrisy of the lies of the powerful, even if it might cost us. Esther's ability to tell the truth when Haman had been so deceptive and skirting and tricking helps us to think about how we can be in the world together. 
in our own systems and structures and morally ambiguous circumstances and relationships that harm us. We can get a glimpse into what this story means for contemporary Jewish audiences next week when we hear from Rabbi Elise. But for now, we'll think about our context as contemporary Christians here in Westchester and beyond. Certainly, there are Christians around the world who throughout history and in contemporary times have known persecution and have longed for God to bring about justice instead of punishment from the hands of those who'd rather have them dead. To these people of faith, Esther serves as a reminder that God is capable of turning the tables and that God is ready to pull off the grandest of reversals, even when it seems that the only thing knocking at the door is death. But for those of us who haven't experienced that kind of persecution, we still might recognize other shared enemies between our story and Queen Esther's. The enemies of death and evil and greed and exploitation and abuse of power. As Christians, we can hold on to the hope that somehow, despite everything that might indicate otherwise, God is actively at work in unlikely places perhaps especially on behalf of those who are being harmed or forgotten or counted out. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 30, verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and you did not let my foes rejoice over me. I didn't get crushed down. Likewise, in Luke 1, 52, Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings and pronounces, He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. The hope that it endures throughout the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament reveals that God will always draw near to those in need so that even while we're waiting for salvation to break through, we can trust that God is close. But in our waiting, Esther also teaches us that we're not passive. We, like Esther, pray and engage spiritual disciplines alongside our community in the midst of our own challenging situations, our own fraught systems and structures, our own feelings of trapped complicity, we can be courageous and faithful and prepared to act when the time is right, knowing that gladness and joy and celebration is up ahead for the people of God. So whether God is calling you to act and you know it, or it's unclear what God might be doing in your life right now, we can benefit from this spirit of active prayer together. And that's what we've been doing throughout this series as Pastor Evan has challenged us to to offer this prayer of examen. And so I have an adapted version of this today. I want to read it out loud to you, and then we can uh, pray it together. And then throughout the week, you might choose to, to pray it as well on your own. So let's take a look. This is on the screen. Um, first, let us be grateful for God's blessings made known to us recently or otherwise, but especially in those times where God turned the tables in ways that fulfilled our hopes. Second, we can review our lives with openness and gratitude, looking for times when God has been present and times when we might have missed God on purpose or not. Three, we can pay attention to our thoughts and emotions. What do we think or feel today and why? What message might God have for us amidst those thoughts and feelings? We can express sorrow for sin the times when we've fallen short and ask for God's forgiving love, knowing that it's there. 
And finally, we can pray for the grace to be more available to the God who loves us and the courage to act when God calls us to do so. So that's what we'll do. We'll, I'll guide you through this now, and then um, we'll continue in worship through song. So let's, let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for Holy Scripture, for the ways that it points to you implicitly, explicitly, in ways surprising and known. God, we come to you this morning grateful for your blessings that you have made known to us, both recently or in the past. But especially, God, the times where you have turned the tables, surprised us in ways that have fulfilled our hopes. God, silently now we lift up to you those times. Lord, we continue with openness and gratitude, reviewing our life, the complicated and messy and beautiful things that have happened. God, bring to our mind the times when you have been present and the times we might have missed you, but maybe we can see you closer now. Next, God, we think about what we felt, the thoughts that are recurring for us today, this morning, during worship and before. God, we seek for a message you might have for us in the midst of these thoughts and emotions and reflections. We bring to you, God, questions. We seek answers, we seek space. We seek to know that we are forgiven. Oh God, help us to believe the words you speak over us through your holy scripture, that you have called us by name, that we are yours. And so God, we pray for the grace to be more available to you. You who love us, help us to love you. Grant us the courage to act when you call us to do so.
Lord, you are at once both close and powerful, knowable and mysterious. And so with thanksgiving for this time and for the opportunity to come to you in prayer, we say in your name, all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org. And as you go, through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.